to be in the house of the Lord again this week. Um, so thankful for just the opportunity to worship the Lord the way that we have been able to worship him and just celebrate all the things that he is to us. Um, I'm especially excited that the Lord is carrying us through um, the book of Romans as we began last week. And so um, even with that being said, I just kind of want to make you aware that today's sermon will be a doozy. It will be a doozy. So um, if you if you put on your proverbial or metaphorical seatbelt, I would say go ahead and lock it in now because um, we are going to hit some stuff. They're going to be difficult. They're going to be hard. They're going to challenge us. But prayerfully, these will be things that will leave us better for having um, heard these from the word of God today. So the title of today's sermon coming out of Romans chapter one is the history of sin the history of sin. And honestly, I can't probably think of a more unappealing title to a sermon than the history of sin. It incorporates two things that people don't like to talk about, history and sin. But both of these are essential for us understanding who our God is and who the God of the Bible is. If they were not, then Paul would not have written them here. He would not have mentioned their significance. And so we want to deal with it as he deals with it. And it's not a bad thing. This is a glorious text. And the things that we see and even how God responds to sin and his grace that we're going to see is carefully woven in the scriptures. And I understand that when we talk about things like God's wrath today, it makes us uncomfortable. But we also don't have the depth and the beauty of God's love without understanding the depth of God's wrath. And so we're going to navigate through this, but we're going to see what happens not only when people reject God's love and mercy, but when his love and mercy overwhelms us as well. So we will look at how God responds to our sin over the course of human history and what that means for us even now. So jump with me, if you will. We're in the book of Romans, Romans chapter one. We're going to be in the 18th verse, Romans chapter one, verse 18. And he reads, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the glory of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare our hearts, as we prepare our ears and our minds to receive what you are sharing with us today, God, we do realize how difficult these things are to hear. We realize how these things challenge us, God, how they may even run up against some of our most closely held beliefs. But Lord, we pray that as we go through this text today, that you will open our hearts, that you will open our minds, that you will reveal to us not just the depth of all of sin and the history of it, but that we will see your goodness and we will see your mercy and we will see your grace in all of this. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now notice how Paul does not mince words by opening this text here. He says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. One of the most elementary mistakes that I've ever seen people make with this text is that they believe that this is a prophetic text. They think that Paul is writing about something that will be happening in the future, but this is not a prophetic text and actually is close to the complete opposite of being that. He actually says that the wrath of God is something that has been revealed, and it is something that is being revealed. And so in our present reality, he is saying that we are seeing the wrath of God played out. So we need to find out why this is even being said by Paul in the first place. Now, as discouraging as it may seem, it actually is here to encourage the readers. And let these words not only be an encouragement to those who would have received the letter, but let them be an encouragement and a motivation for us as well. He is saying that God's wrath is made clear to us in how it is revealed in his response to the sin of mankind in the world. But how? If you've been with us in Bible study, you'll know that we've been going through the book of Job. And one of the things that we have consistently mentioned is that when God's wrath comes down, it does not just come down on the unrighteous. It comes down, as the Bible says, when it rains, it rains on the just and it rains on the unjust. So it's not just the unrighteous who suffer, but it is everyone who suffers. So how are we now saying that God's wrath is revealed to us if it's not just revealed against the sin and unrighteousness of man? Well, when he says that it's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, it points more to God's response to sin as a whole, more than just God's response to us specifically. Now, how do we know this? Well, Paul gives us a clue later on in Romans chapter 6. He says that the wage, that is, the payment for our sin is ultimately death. 
This is and has been the pattern of rebellion of God since the fall. It is that warning that Adam receives that in the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. But that means that death is comprehensive. Adam and Eve, along with all of humanity, would be separated from God. And that is what what we call the first death that we are no longer in the presence of God. Death would then reign over their mortal bodies. And he pronounced to them, from the ground you came, and to the ground you will return. And that death has been passed down to every single one of us. We are reminded that in Adam all die. So when he speaks about the wrath of God being revealed, he is speaking both over the course of human history, but he's also speaking about the present day. How does Paul say that that wrath is revealed to us? Well, he says later in verses 24, 26, and 28 that there are three times in three different ways he says, First, he says that God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Second, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Third, God gave them up to a depraved mind. Paul's argument here then is that the human history of God responding to sin says that he gives man over to himself. Now, you remember a while back, I preached a sermon called The Danger of Independence. And what we mentioned there is whenever you look throughout the Bible, that independence was never a present from God. It was a punishment. The last thing that we would dare want to be is actually on our own. And that's exactly what the Bible is saying here. Over the course of human history, God's general response to sin when man rejects him is that he gives man himself. Oh, that's what you want. You want freedom, and that's exactly what he gives them. When Cain killed his brother, he was sent away to fend for himself. When Adam and Eve desired to be independent of God, they were given that. When Israel wanted a king, they were giving that. And when they wanted to be on their own, he sent them into the wilderness. Paul's point here is that God's wrath is revealed to us through the course of human history because of how we have all, every single one of us, has rejected God. Now this stands the test of time. It is even more evident for us today. We are living in what some people believe to be a Christian nation And we think that we are the one country that God is protecting. But let me break some news if anybody in this room holds that view. Our nation, just like the rest of the world, epitomizes the spirit that has been handed over to itself. America is a nation who is its own God. So is every other country and every other civilization that has ever lived. It is as it was spoken in the present time that God's natural created order is being disturbed. As the scripture speaks, that which is right is now called wrong. 
and that which is wrong is not now called right. And as our scripture even says, not only do they do these things, but they give approval to the people who do such things. The wickedness attacks God's natural creation. It attacks God's intended role for gender, his design for marriage, his value for life, and the very origins of the world. But Paul does not leave us here, y'all, without a why. I mean, it can be difficult to understand the nature of God's wrath if you think that the wrath is undeserved. But then Paul says why it happens. He says that it happens because the unrighteous suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. He goes on to say that this is even more condemning because God has made himself plain to everyone and he has been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. And let me explain why that's important to know. Because that means that just believing in God is not enough to put you in right standing with God. According to Paul here, it's impossible not to believe in God. Think about that. The atheists say that God doesn't exist, but God says that atheists don't exist because ever since the beginning of time, he has made himself clearly perceived. But what does man do? They suppress it. They know the truth. Every single one of us knows the truth. And because we know the truth, just believing in God is not enough to put you in right standing with God. Everybody believes in God. Everybody believes in God. Even the people who say they don't, they do. Even the people who say, I can't believe in a God who would allow an infant to die. The fact that you even have a moral standard for God means you believe in God. You just don't like God. You don't like the God of the Bible. And this is huge. This is that moment if you are in the courtroom where you watch CSI, all those shows where the prosecutor whips out that piece of evidence that you really didn't expect them to bring up. He says that God's wrath is demonstrated because we suppress the truth. What is that truth? That is the truth of God's existence and his power. And there, by the way, is not a single one of us in this room who has not at some point denied who God is. Every, every single one of us has a past life. Every single one of us has a former life. Every single one of us at some point try to do our best to live as if God doesn't exist. And that's how you treat God like he doesn't exist. It's not that you believe in him. Of course you believe in him. You have to be an idiot not to. It is when you live as if he doesn't exist that you actually deny his existence and his power. And I'm afraid that there may be people in this room who say, I believe in God, but you live as if you do not. That is what condemns man, by the way. Whether or not we believe in God is one thing, but all of us, when we did not know him, deny the very power of who he is. The Bible even says that there will be many people in this day who have a form of godliness who have a form of spirituality, who may even have a form of religion, but they deny 
his power. Well, what does it mean to deny his power? It means that you are denying that his saving work is effective. And even more so, you're denying that you even need his saving work. It's like the story of the man, the two men that were on the plane that was going down. And as that plane started to descend, they rushed to get their parachutes. And the first gentleman started to put his parachute on, and just as he was getting ready to jump out of the plane, he looks and realizes that the other man seems to be hesitating. He looks and he says, put the parachute on. What are you doing? And the man looks back at him. He says, I'm just not sure if I put this parachute on that it's going to save me. And he says, listen, you've got two options. Either trust that parachute or crash and burn. That's it. And my advice to you is, likewise, for any of us in this room, we've got two options. Either believe and trust in the power of God to save us or crash and burn. That is effectively the same for all of us. And even with the unrighteous, they suppress the truth of God. And that truth, Paul says, is generally revealed to mankind. Y'all, that's what we call general revelation or natural revelation. It means that God in his grace, in his grace, in his love and kindness for us, has actually made himself clear to us. The fact that he is the creator of the world can even be understood by a child. This is why the Psalms proclaims in Psalm 19 and 1 that the heavens declare of the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. All of creation, y'all, is a testimony that there is an infinite creator who wisely designed and carefully and graciously created not just the world, but every single one of us. So why David is marveling at this fact. He says, when I look at the heavens, the work of just your fingertips, I can only be left with one thought. Who am I that you are mindful of me? That the God of the universe in his infinite wisdom who took time to create all the worlds and the universe that we see also created mankind in his very image. He is saying that when you look at the heavens, when you look at how the sky is arrayed with the stars and and the moon and the sun and how they are all working in tangent with one another, that we are on this giant sphere that is flying through space that is trillions and trillions of tons in weight, yet has not stopped orbiting, has not stopped being suspended in space for one second. He says, when you look at that world, if you know, then you know that there is a God who created it. You know it. Or when you look at turtles that are hatched in the sand, who are created with the instinct to walk right back to the water. Or when you see ants and ants can map out their way to one another and another ant can come behind them and find that way. Or when you look at the little seed of a pine cone that grows up into a 30-foot tree, you can't help but admit that there is a God. 
let alone when we look at ourselves, when we look at the creatures around us, when we look at the heavens and see that there is a God in infinite wisdom who has designed everything that we see. And I want you to think about that. Anytime you have seen a beautiful dress, we watched the Oscars last week, and the first thing they see, they say when they see this beautiful dress, who made it? Who made it? Because you know something so beautifully designed and crafted and stitched together has to have a designer, has to have a creator. Anytime you have heard the most soul-stirring song that moves you, you think, who made this song? In the same way, you don't look at the complexity of this world or at the complexity of who you are and think, what a beautiful accident. I'm so glad that chance all came together at the right moment at the right time to create me. No. You look at yourself, you look at the world, and you think, look at what God has made. And Paul says that this revelation is available to all of us. And the reason that all mankind is condemned is because they see that truth and they reject what they see. They see God and they cry evolution. They see God and they cry that he doesn't exist. But this isn't because they don't know the truth. It's because they refuse to accept that truth. They reject it. This is, by the way, an answer to a major theological question that many people have when they say, but what about the people who never hear the gospel? How can they be condemned? Well, the answer is simple. And I'll answer it in two scriptures. First, the Bible says this, as Paul knows that this is a possible response for seeing it in Romans chapter two. He says, for when the Gentiles who did not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Look at what Paul says here. And I try to explain it because it could be hard to understand. He says that when the law was given and when the Gentiles did not have it, they were still held accountable to the law because the law was written on their hearts. What does that mean? It means you didn't need the law to tell you that murdering another human being was wrong. That was written as a part of your moral code. You knew it was wrong. It means when you lied, you didn't need it to be written in the law. It was written on your moral code and you knew that it was wrong. It means when you committed adultery, you knew in your heart that it was wrong. But he says that men reject even the natural law that is written on their hearts. Therefore, they are condemned. Is he talking about people in the past? Yes. Is he talking about people in the present? Yes. 
Is he talking about people in the future? Yes. People are condemned because of their own rejection of God's moral law. That's the first reason. Now, the second reason no one has an excuse is what Paul says here in verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Because over the course of human history, rejecting God only sends man into a deeper, darker, sinful spiral. Just in case you think, well, maybe he didn't really mean it. He actually doubled downs on this in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 10. He says, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Y'all, this may be hard to read about God, but it is true. When men and women deny the truth of who God is, God can blind them so much so that they'll believe a lie over the truth. And so let's think about this. The giving up doesn't just affect the sinner, but it affects the whole world. And this is the dilemma for many people. They will drive themselves up a wall declaring the need for justice or fairness or equality in the world and in the same breath proclaim, but there is no God. It is that very God who even put justice on your heart. The irony. And we reject that God. And as that happens, it turns our world into chaos. But look at why. He says that by rejecting God, those who are called wise in this world, they become fools. A good example of this, you can look it up. I looked it up before I did this sermon. It's still available if you want to see it. A good example of this is from a woman named Elaine Morgan. In 20. 11, I believe, or 2009, Elaine Morgan gave a TED Talk. And, you know, it's a myth that we evolved from apes, by the way. We, we were created by God, so let me be clear about that. I mean, I, I've seen a few ape-looking people in my life, but we came from God. We were all created in his image, so we did not evolve from apes. Well, she agreed with that. Elaine Morgan agreed that we did not evolve from apes. She said that we evolved from fish. And she wrote a book about it called Aquatic Apes. Or what about in 2018 when Miriam Hine gave a TEDx talk and she said we should learn to respect pedophilia because pedophilia is essentially an unchangeable sexual orientation. Y'all, let me be clear. This is God giving people over to themselves. And when you watch these TED Talks and you watch a group of hundreds of people stand up and applaud this, this is people who also give approval of such wickedness. 
being deluded. And just in case you think I'm saying that this is just now happening to us, this is not just now happening. This is the history of sinful people in the Bible and in our world. And let's reflect. Genesis 6 and 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Or Genesis 18 and 20, the Lord, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. Or Judges 7 16, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is not something new. This is the pattern of our history. And so you're hearing all this and you may say, so what's the point? Where's the hope? Well, there is hope. And that's why this is called the history of sin. Because whenever we see in our world that sin and wickedness is prevailing, there's this great sin, God has a plan to redeem it. With Noah and the flood, God redeems the earth and he fills it with even more people. When the Israelites are taken out of captivity, God has a promised land awaiting them. When the sin of Sidon and Gomorrah was prevalent, yes, God destroyed the city, but he also had a remnant of believers who were delivered. When Israel rejected God's judges, he had a king in mind who would be for him and for his people. So the pattern is that God brings judgment, but the hope is that when God brings judgment, he uses that judgment to bring deliverance, to bring redemption, and to bring restoration. That's why so many of our testimonies are filled with coming to the very bottom of our lives. What we feel like was that metaphorical destruction. And what did God do with it? He brought us deliverance from our sins. He redeemed us for his glory and he restored us to the place and state that he intended for us. Y'all, the pattern of sin in our world is the pattern of our very salvation. Yes, the wickedness of man is great, but God is greater. God is more than the evil in this world. And because of that, we have a hope. But how do we respond to it? We don't just hold on to that hope for ourselves, but we take that hope and we spread that message of hope and redemption and deliverance and restoration. And we give broken people a sense of fullness and wholeness in the gospel. With this in mind, What should we as believers be doing as we await God's ultimate deliverance? Well, we work. We need to be working. And the Bible makes it clear, man must work while it is day. Because night is coming. And when night comes, no one works. Y'all, the urgency of our message is not that just that God will punish sinful man, because that is true, 
But God is also going to redeem this world for his intended purpose. And it's going to be beautiful. And if there are people around you that you know and love who you know are headed to destruction. Love them by telling them the truth. Love them by telling them that the only chance they hope they have at fullness and wholeness will not come in this world. But it comes in Christ. And we should really believe that. Y'all, it is dangerously easy for us to just sit around and complain about the world, to complain about the evil, complain about the decisions that are made, to complain about the politics, to complain about the president. It's easy to do that. It might be even easier to want and wait for wicked people to be judged. But what if we preach this message of deliverance? Because as Paul reminds us in Scripture, and I'll leave you with this, but we get on our proverbial high horses and feel good about ourselves. All of these sins, there's not a single one of us who can raise their hand and say, not guilty. Such were some of us. How do we get out? But God. That's it. But God who is rich in his mercy, in his grace, and his love has redeemed us. What did I do to deserve to be saved? Not a thing. It's it's right there. It is a gift from God. You didn't do anything to deserve it. God in his grace saw fit to save every single one of us who is saved in this room. What have I earned rightfully? I have earned my spot in hell. But God who is rich in mercy and love and grace And our hope is that soon our message of the world will be realized and that this world that we live in will be delivered. It will be redeemed and it will be restored for its intended purpose. And we will all reside together in perfect unity and harmony. And we will not have to worry about sin. We won't have to worry about sickness. We don't have to worry about death. We don't have to worry about brokenness. We don't have to worry about any of the things that this present life brings down on us. We will live with God and he will be our king. Let's pray. Lord, messages like this can, in their own way, be challenging and even difficult for us to receive at times, but they... Now, they also give us hope. And God, at the end of the day, we must remember that Christ has given us a hope, a hope in him, a hope that Paul writes in Romans that will not be put to shame. God, if we only have hope in this life, we, we will be put to shame, but we have been given eternal life. God, let this message burn our hearts and our souls this week. 
and for the rest of our lives as we think about how you have responded over the course of history to sin, how our world is a very reflection of that. God, let us clearly see that. But God, let us also see that all brokenness, all sinfulness, all ungodliness, all unrighteousness can only be healed and redeemed and restored and delivered by the gospel. God, and who a better testimony of that truth than every single one of us who names the name of the Lord. God, let us be about our Father's business. For the people we love, for the people we like, for the people we don't like, let us be about the business of recruiting people into your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.